Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We're currently going through a sermon series called I Am. For these next few weeks, Pastor Jordan will be looking to scripture to answer the question so many of us face, who is Jesus? For generations, people have been debating this question. Was he a good moral teacher? Was he a revolutionary? Was he a figment of history's imagination? Was he a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? John's Gospel records the identity of Jesus by examining his very words. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. So today we're going to be continuing on our, our sermon series. If you're new, if you're visiting with us, thank you for coming. This is going to be a message on our sermon series on I Am. And the I Am series, we've been walking through John, where the I Am series of, of I Am, the I Am who I am, I am the bread of life. Today, the I Am of, I am the light of the world. And that's really what we're going to be looking at today as we, as we jump into John. We'll be in John 8, but primarily in John 9. And so we began really, in a sense, in this series asking, who is Jesus? Right? Who, who is Jesus? We sang about him. Ben Fuller gave testimony of his impact in his life. So many of you come here today because Jesus means something to you. Some of you might even be dragged here today. Maybe this isn't your place of comfortable. You don't find yourself comfortable in church, but yet you're here today. And it's really, we're all here because of Jesus. Where the beginning, we looked at the word and the statement, I am who I am. God's name that he reveals to Moses in Exodus to himself, that God is existent. God is. And Jesus says in the New Testament, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus links himself to the divine name and it's ultimately saying to the world, Jesus is God. He has no beginning, he has no end. Therefore, he can say something about your inevitable end. The end that we all face at some point in our life as we march towards the day of death that we have. Jesus, who transcends all of that and has actually taken it on himself and conquered death, is now able to speak into your end by speaking life into your need for eternal life. So Jesus says, I am who I am. He says, I am before Abraham, I am. And then last week, I am the bread of life. So I am literally the very sustenance of your life, the very energy, the very source of your living existence in this time and space and place that we find ourselves in is because of Jesus, is because of his life-sustaining bread, the sustenance for our life. And essentially, the whole reason that Jesus reveals that I am the bread, and today he's gonna reveal to us, I am the light of the world, The very reason he reveals these things is John tells us the end of John's gospel, the very purpose of this today. These are recorded for you all. These miracles in the book of John is recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life on his name. That's why Jesus says you may have life through me. You have the bread, the manna that fell down from heaven, this bread of heaven, this bread you will take in And you will eat and find life. Yes, not just physical life in the wilderness, but spiritual life. Jesus leads us as this new Moses 
As he brings and kind of crosses the water, parts the seas as he walks on water to to the disciples after the feeding of the 5,000. Then he brings this living water from the rock in John chapter 8 in a sense when he says, I am this living water. Drink of me and you'll never thirst. And he dispenses this bread of life. Then in John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Do you remember that light that led you in the wilderness, Israelites? That pillar of fire that led you through the places of where you were to go and it lit up at night. I am that light. I am the light of the world. And so that's when we read in John 8. John 8 verse 12. It says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's open up in today's message in prayer. Father, we come before you. We ask a blessing upon this place. God, give me the words to say. Father, they do not come from me. They come from you. Your word is truth. Your word gives life. Father, you are the word that's come down from heaven, the, the, the word that's taken on flesh. Be our life today. I pray for someone here in this place. They don't know you. You don't have that relationship, God, but you're speaking to them right now. Your spirit is tugging on their heart. You're revealing yourself to them. May you be alive to us in this place. Would you encourage the hearts of every single person here today? Would you remind us of, of your eternal power and eternal life to deliver us from every darkness that we face? That today we would walk and step into the light because you are our light. Thank you, Father, for these truths. Thank you, God, for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So John 8, 12, as we just looked at, the light of the world, light and dark. It's a metaphor and an analogy of some sorts of almost uh, such a, it's a regular phrase. It's a regular phrase. It's, almost, it's one of the most prolific pictures in the Bible, one of the most prolific analogies given to us in the Bible. Almost in every book from the Old Testament to New, you can, you can find a, a, a statement about light and dark, it's almost to the point where we've heard it so many times, we haven't really stopped to consider the ap- actual implications of light and dark. It's so common, I actually found myself just almost drowning in, in passages of light and dark throughout the Bible. You can just start a study and find so many different allusions, illustrations, storylines, phrases, Bible verses on light and dark. In a sense, even in our own language, in our English language, we have just commonplace ways of using light and dark as contrasting ideas that we don't even realize the biblical background of it or what they mean. We might even say that potentially you're saying, hey, there's this, um, there's this new show out, but it's called, a, it's a little dark, you might say. It's a dark comedy. Have you ever heard of that? It's a little dark. Or, you know, I had a light bulb moment, right? I don't remember what, what comedy there were, that little kid show, light bulb, right? You know, it pops on. There's a light bulb moment, or I've begun to see the light, you might say. Or I was, uh, the other day, it's, it's as if I was walking in the dark. I didn't know what was going on. I was confused. I didn't know what to turn or where to go. It was as if I was walking in the dark. Or 
Last night, maybe some of you got home and you were out like a light, right? You were out like a light. Some of you as kids remember, or maybe as adults, you're still afraid of the dark. We're afraid of the dark. They shed some light on the situation. Or he's hiding his light under a bushel. He's not letting it shine, as the word would say. Or hey, you need to light a fire under somebody. You You ever said that? Or there's light at the end of the tunnel. Or uh, the light dawned on me the other day and I realized. Or, uh, you know, as the kids say, because I got to be relative, that's lit, right? Okay? So you're like, that was a few years ago. Well, I'm a little behind the times, as you haven't figured out. She's the light of my life. I need to bring light to the situation. He doesn't like being in the limelight. They were kept in the dark about that situation. Well, he has a little bit of a dark side, right? That's a little bit of a dark place. They went from darkness to light. Statements about darkness to light are so common. Those are just a few that I could come up with. Darkness, this idea of confusion, this idea of not knowing. You lack truth, you lack information, you lack clarity. You're believing a lie. There's this evil, there's this coldness to darkness, there's a sadness and depression that surrounds a place of darkness. There's fear, often revolving around blindness and death. Light, the opposite of all of those things. There's warmth, there's truth, there's clarity, there's vision, there's sight. There's a future and hope with light. There's sight and ultimately in all of light there is life. There is life. Darkness is always used to describe this connection between blindness of sorts and the fear that results from it. Tim Keller describes it this way. He says, if, it's as if like, imagine you were driving a car 60 miles per hour and you were unable to see out the windows and the windshield. And I thought, well, Tim, this is actually kind of, you know, pretty common in the wintertime around here. When you park your car out, you can't see out the windshield, but you just drive anyways, right? But imagine you're driving a car 60 miles per hour, but unable to see out the windows and the windshield. That would be frightening. What if you were driving towards death without the ability to see what was coming? That will also make you afraid. You're driving down the road of life and you have no idea where you're going and you have no idea what is coming. Could you imagine? It's as if when Jesus comes into our life, he opens our eyes to see clearly the reality that is in front of us, the destination in which we're headed and how it is that we get there. You you drive towards a place knowing and hoping to be able to see. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He delivers us from the domain of darkness. He transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light. A domain of darkness. You can think of it this way. Below the ocean's surface is a mysterious world that I found online actually represents 95% of the earth's living space is below the ocean surface. Consider that. The, the absolute depth and massiveness, if that's a word, of the depths of the ocean is, my, uh, is, is startling. You could hide more than 20 Washington monuments stacked on top of one another in some places of the depth of the ocean, the bottom of the ocean floor to the top of the sea. Uh, Scientists actually describe the ocean in three major layers. You've probably heard of this. 
the sunlight zone. It's like a sun uh, is like the, the surface level down to 200 meters. Really, some would say it's even 100 meters, but 200 meters, zero to 200 meters below is the sunlight zone. Uh, the one right below that is the twilight zone, 200 to 1,000 meters. 1,000 meters below, right? The, and the twilight zone, even when you get further down, the sun barely penetrates. If anything, the sun is not even getting through past that 200 barely. But the twilight zone, also known as the dysphotic zone, Fun fact for the day. Mid, uh, midnight zone is below that. So you get from literally 1,000 to 4,000 meters under, the earth, un, under that, that twilight zone down to the bottom of the ocean. 1,000 to 4,000 meters known as the midnight zone. There is virtually zero light pollution. It is pitch black midnight. No moon shining, no nothing. The, uh, the aphotic zone. This is a place around where the on the news, you've been hearing probably a lot about the Titan sub that imploded. It was all over the place in some place, right? This, this, that, that it imploded, what I read was around 3,500 meters down below in the midnight zone. There are actually places even below that from 4,000 to 6,000 feet in different trenches around the, uh, the globe. Maybe you've heard of like the Mariana Trench in some of these places. There are other trenches that go even deeper that are some places that I read around four to uh, 6,000 meters below and even beyond that further down in some trenches where it is deep, deep. And it's known in some places, it's known that that zone is called the abyss. I think, that, I think it's a pretty apt statement for below midnight zone just being known as the abyss. No light. No awareness of light, just cold, deep, dark. It's inhospitable to life, except for a few strange, incredible life forms. In fact, one of the deepest fish that have, uh, has ever been caught. Some of you guys think you're pretty good fishermen. Try this one out. This is a, known as a snailfish, just recently discovered a few years ago. They didn't even know things like this existed at that kind of depth. It was found, if I'm correct here, around 7,000 meters at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. They dropped lights and a camera down there and they discovered something known as the snailfish. It looks like a translucent tadpole. It's really not the prettiest looking fish, but it is everywhere down there and it's an extraordinary creature. It actually can withstand the crushing water pressure of what Scientists would say, likely, if you were to stack 1,600 elephants upon the snailfish's head, that's the water pressure that this little snailfish is enduring at that bottom of the Mariana Trench. Incredible. I didn't even think anything could exist down there. But you can imagine yourself, and this is going to get a little weird, but you know, that's sermon illustrations. Imagine yourself as a snailfish at the bottom of the Mariana Trench in complete darkness. You're like, I am a snailfish. Okay. You're like, I told you, a little strange. Just imagine yourself living in the bottom of the bottom of the ocean, deep, dark. There's no light. There's no dory who's going to come and rescue you, okay? You're swimming in a place in the abyss. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, you, you have just this beam of light 
Now you at the bottom there have probably never even experienced or seen light. You don't even maybe have a word for light. Your entire existence has been in the domain of darkness, in the abyss. Ever since your creation as this little snailfish at the bottom of that ocean, you've never even heard of light. You don't even know what it were to look like if you were to see it. And then all of a sudden, this beam, like I said, almost out of, the, out of nowhere, reaches the bottom of your little existence there on the bottom. And, and then out of natural curiosity, you begin to, to follow that beam of light out of the abyss, up the thousands of meters as you just keep swimming, just keep swimming. You swim and swim up and up and up. You reach into the midnight zone, which now even seems brighter than you thought because you were living in the abyss. You're in the midnight zone. You follow that ray of light as it gets brighter and brighter. You run into the twilight zone, which seems like daytime, and then you couldn't even imagine the existence of a place called the sunlight zone, (laughs) let alone you reach a coral reef in the Cayman Islands. Have you ever been to the Cayman Islands? Oh, my word. Tell you. I often, as I say, feel called to those regions of the world. But the Lord has planted me here in beautiful New England. But we find ourselves swimming all of a sudden as this little snailfish going up through the zones into the sunlight zone. And then we swim and we reach the sunlight zone into a beautiful, miraculous, color-filled life teeming across the coral reefs of the Cayman Islands. Beauty upon beauty, unimaginable, almost undescribable to our teeny tiny little snailfish brains. And we find ourselves surrounded with light to where we would say we feel ourselves blinded by the light. <laughs> there's so much light, there's so much good, there's so much color I've never even imagined. It's like we just were living in a black and white movie and now we have stepped into full HD, 4K, whatever color you might describe, right? This is my small attempt to describe what it is like for, for Jesus to be this ray of light down into the abyss of our world, to be, as John 1 would say, the light of men, the light of life, that the light of heaven has come down into our world, then enveloped and enwrapped himself in flesh to take on our snailfish form, <laughs> And then to be our rescuer and our savior for the behalf of our people and lead us into the heavenly existence of the sunlight zone. Isaiah 9.2 says it a lot better than that entire illustration could ever do. But Isaiah 9.2 says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them a light has shone. Perhaps you can resonate with that. Resonate yourself apart from God in the darkness of your confusion and in your blindness to then have Jesus come into your life to be the light that shines upon your life and give you an awareness of eternal life of your purpose, of your existence, of the reason that you're here and the reason that anything is here is because of what Jesus has done. Light shines upon our domain of darkness. Light brings to life so much that is. John 1, 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and that darkness of the abyss shall not overcome it. John 1, 9, the true light which gives light to everyone 
is coming into the world. C.S. Lewis says it in regards to this truth that Jesus is the light of his life. He ultimately says it in perspective to everything else around you. C.S. Lewis says, familiar quote that some of you have probably heard, I believe in Christianity just as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. It is by that light that everything else falls into place, where you go from blindness and confusion to seeing the truth, the truth of life. Jesus is like the sun in our world. The sun of righteousness rises in Micah, as it says, or Malachi, as it rises up and it, it comes with healing on its wings. John 1.17 ultimately says this law that was given to Moses, as Moses dispensed the, the understanding of life and right and wrong and righteousness and salvation, here now grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. That comes through him and the light of life. So turn with me now to John 9. What we're going to do, we're going to walk through John 9 today. We're going to run through this chapter. It's, an abs- it's one of my I say this a lot, but it's one of my favorite stories, okay? Uh, Each week I'm like, ooh, this one's my favorite, right? John 9, I think even, if I'm correct, even this year in Easter time, we we looked at this. Easter's message actually carried some of these same themes. But as we looked at John 9, I read some of that. So some of it might be familiar to you, but I hope to shed some light. Okay, this is going to be hard not to do all those today. Shed some light upon this passage for you today to see it in a new light, right? So I am the light is with first idea. We're going to look at the first seven verses. We'll progressively go through this passage. Read with me um, John 9.1. It says this, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? You've, you've heard this before, right? Maybe you're not. Who sinned? Like, whose fault is it? <laughs> who can we point a finger at? Verse 3, Jesus answered. It was, not this man sin- it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground. Very strange thing. He spit on the ground. He made mud with his saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, hey, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. It's a glorious miracle. It's a sign of Jesus' authority and power. This miracle is incredible. I love the way it describes even all the details, the strange details about it that makes it quite unique. But the question is also of some importance at the beginning. The disciples come to Jesus like, okay, we know how this works. Like this guy's been born blind, so whose fault is it? (laughs) What did he do to deserve this, right? Who who can we, his parents parents must have done something, I'll tell you what, that that's happened, right? It's a question, it's, um, it's actually a very legalistic question question of legalism, of of seeking to point out the fault into something by nature of something that we must have done to deserve whatever it is that you're going through. Carter and Redberg say it this way, legalism is the attempt to earn God's favor through our own righteous works. A legalist operates under the usually unspoken assumption that people earn or keep God's favor through their righteous deeds or their standard of living. So legalists 
begin to view themselves as deserving of certain blessings. In other words, if I can earn God's favor by my good works, then good works, then the more good works I do, the more God becomes indebted to me. He must reward my good deeds with blessings, my good lifestyle with all these things. So if something bad happens to me, it must be, be because I did something bad. So legalists come in all kinds of forms. Throughout centuries in history, even in the early church, Paul addresses them in Galatians and other places where they are making the law and this standard to be the standard of righteous living. When others were outcast outside of that, today's culture is no different. We have a variety of these things that exist in every single church where we seek to put certain self-appointed standards on others to define their righteous way of living. Not defining a way that God would do it, but again, towards our personal uh, definitions of what good living would look like. You dress a certain way, you look a certain way, listen to a certain kind of music, don't dress, listen to a certain kind of music, don't dress a certain way that way, right? Live, eat this way, dress that way, work this way, believe these things, watch these things, don't watch these things. These standards which are then set for one person must then be set for every other single person after that. And that can become culturally oppressive at times and not allow the freedom of the spirit to be living and working through people or this idea of this law of attraction, which can be popular today, where this idea of we just do positive things, then we will attract positive things back to us, which is not Christian in any means. It is purely pagan. Where God is this force that can be channeled for my use by my bidding. If I say the right you know, little spell and do the right thing and, and follow the right and mix the right tincture into the pot, then out poof will become the genie that will get me what I want, Right? This is very similar and it seems almost silly and yet we can fall into that trap so easily because it's, well, whose fault is it that this happened? Or the reverse, you know, like, well, since this happened, what were the things that led to me getting that, right? And so whose fault is it? The disciples are asking, like, is it his fault? It's probably so easy to cast blame and judgment here. I think sometimes when we when we go through a time like that, where this man is born blind, he's endured great suffering in his life great difficulty in his life. I believe any of us who've gone through those kinds of things need to be reminded that whatever suffering we're going through, it's not always so easy to point a finger as to whose fault it is. And I think often when we do that, we can so easily waste our suffering. Do you, do you, you know what I mean by that? Right? You can waste what God's trying to do in your life because you're so often looking to escape whatever situation you find yourself in. When perhaps... God is wanting to do something marvelous in your life just like he's about to do in the blind man's life. And no, the blind man did not evidence this great, amazing uh, faith. In fact, he doesn't even really say much at the beginning. Jesus is the one who comes up to him. But we find that in this situation so often we can try to constantly avoid potentially what God might be doing in our life. And yes, that comes with wisdom and understanding what this is and where this came from. We often do not know why many things happen in our life. But we do know the one who can do something about it. And that might be an answer to your prayer or it might be just trusting him more today. You don't know what tomorrow will bring, but today may I trust him whenever he's placed in front of me. Is he trustworthy? Yes. Is he good? Yes. My faith says to follow him and look to him. The light comes into our life, into the night of the darkness of whatever that might be. Grave difficulty, hardship and sickness, challenging and loss, whatever it is, we find ourselves in places and spaces that are needing of a miracle. 
needing of God to come in and miraculously do. And there are many times when he does. And yet there are many times when he doesn't. But we come to the same God, the same Jesus who is capable and able. We follow him no matter where that might lead. And so we see this accusation of whose fault is this? And, and Jesus says, it, as, he puts the, as he puts this kind of like, it's, it's pretty incredible because he, he like puts this mud on this and it, ultimately by doing this he's saying, no, this is, this is not this man's fault. It's not his parents' fault. This man was born with blindness so I could restore his sight. So, so that his weakness, in his weakness, the power of God would be shown through him. So that through his blindness, many would come to true sight. How is God doing that in your life? How is God shining his light through your weakness? As Paul said, take this, this thorn from me, Lord. No, 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 my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. May my power be made perfect in weakness. How is God's light shining in and through your weakness and suffering so that others would come to sight? Maybe you coming to sight into a greater awareness of God's power and his goodness and his love for you. That's it. And I understand what I'm saying is a lot easier to say than it is to live and it is to go through. I, I, I recognize that. But we see that in this darkness of his sight, many would come to see the light of the world. And that's an extraordinary vessel to be used for the master's use, right? So in our trials, in our sicknesses, our maladies, disabilities, and difficulties, God can use them to open the eyes of those who need to see the light of the world in a whole new way than they ever did before. God can use your suffering for his glory and for your growth. This man was born blind, so the works and the power of God might be displayed in him. And Jesus says that. It is not that this man has sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Hey, and he says, look, listen, there ain't much time for this. I'm here with you right now. He works right now because it is day. Night is coming. Day right now because the light of the world is right in front of you. And so now that I'm here, we must work for the night is coming. Light is here. Who is that light? Verse 5. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. I am the light. Let me show you. And then he doesn't just say it. He then follows through. And he says, here, he spits on the ground. I won't do that, okay? He spits on the ground and he makes mud and he puts it on the eyes of this man. A very strange thing. And then sends him to the pool of Siloam. In so many different ways. I've read too many different commentaries about what this means. It, to me, it often has this sense of just, at least the visual that I see it, of this burying of the dead. This earth that is taken, this life, and then given to what is dead is buried, and then as it is washed, it is risen to new life, right? It is a picture of baptism. It is a picture of spiritual rebirth, born again, whatever you might like to say. And the Pool of Siloam has a variety of connections to the Old Testament. In Isaiah 8, 6, there are prophecies about the Messiah, that this one would come and provide a living water. And yet in Isaiah 8, verse 6, it talks about the Pool of Siloam, and it says, they did not want to receive the healing from the Pool of Siloam. And so as a result of judgment, God sent the flooding waters of Assyria to judge the people of Israel. So Jesus is saying, watch this man's example. He is willing to receive the healing waters of the pool of Siloam, and he receives new light and eternal life. And it's not in the sense that we must then find the fountain of youth in the pool of Siloam and go dive in there. That's not his point, the spiritual example that is being given. 
that if you repent from your sin, you are willing to trust in the one who has been buried and risen to new life, you too can see. You too can not only just physically see, yes, that's important, but spiritually see. Not only will you physically have bread and your needs met, but you will be spiritually and eternally satisfied. This is what Jesus is teaching us. He obeys, he goes, he washes, he repents, he is healed, he comes back seeing. The light of the world is shown into his darkness and to the blind man, giving him the blessing of clear vision and sight. And then I love this storyline. We're gonna read and go through this a little bit more quickly over these next little sections here, but really the next phrase, verses eight through 12, he says, I am the man, he says this. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it, it is he. Others said, no, 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 this isn't the guy, but he, he's like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. It's, it's almost comical. This story, you'll see there's some comical things in here. So they said to him, then how are your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, well, where is this guy? He said, I do not know. I just love that this is exactly how every conversation goes. People don't believe you. People are trying to, and he's trying to tell them, uh, guys, it's me. Don't you know me? Like, I am the man. It's me. It's me. And they're like, no, you're not the guy. I don't believe you, right? Who did this to you? The guy, I don't know. Okay, call him Jesus. He did this, and I went, and I see. Right? It's just so matter of fact, so simple. It's so innocent and pure. This is exactly what God wants from us. Not this jaded, this aspect of always questioning, this skeptical, skeptical sense. This is childlike faith that God, in a sense, does not despise. He glorifies this. So he kept saying, it's me. It's me, right? And I just remember, um, speaking of Hillfest, a few years ago they did the Hillfest beard fundraiser thing where you guys all gave money, especially this guy up here, gave money to raise money for Hillfest to shave my beard off. It was terrible, right? They shaved it off, and I can still remember, I don't think it was you, Jerry, I think it was Taylor at home, but I came home after I shaved my beard and my daughter did not recognize me and you can all feel bad about yourself because she cried when she saw me, okay? Yeah, feel guilty about that, right? Some of you who supported it, I appreciate you're my friends. I have a list, okay? But thank you, you supported the not shave side, but the shave side, uh, they won that year. And I came home and Taylor cried. She didn't believe it. I kept saying, honey, it's me. Don't you know? It's me, it's just daddy. And she's like, get away from me, you dude, right? Didn't know who I was. And this is that new life this guy has. As some would say, they're hiding behind the mask of a beard, right? Take it off and show you their new life. Now, this idea, right? He's, he's saying, it's me. It's amazing. Look at what God has done. And I, I do want to point out this one fun fact is nobody congratulates him. Wow, that's awesome, right? Nobody cares about the blind man. Not a one. Everyone cares about who is this guy that did this trick, right? What is going on here? Nobody says, hey, that's great, man. I'm proud of you. I'm so happy what God's done in your life. Nope, he gets no love. So look at verse 13. Now they say, well, he is a prophet. The, the blind man will now prophesy into who Jesus is. They brought him to the Pharisees. You know how this is gonna go. They brought him to the Pharisees, verse 13. The man who had formerly been blind, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, meaning Jesus did work on the Sabbath day. He broke the law, meaning he can't be from God, according to them. Verse 15, so the Pharisees, again, asked him how he had received his sight. And the blind man said, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and now I see, Okay. I've already told you this. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. 
Shocker, right? Verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about this since he's opened your eyes? And he's like, well, if he did that, he is a prophet. (laughs) And they don't like to hear that, right? Meaning he is one who speaks for God. He must be from God because he does these great things. The blind man now gives testimony to all these people. Look at what God's done in my life. And many of you could do that with your life. Hey, I don't really know all the answers, but this is what God's done in my life. Let me tell you about him. He's Jesus. He's really done a miraculous work. Let me tell you about it. And others are like, no, no, no. I don't want that. I don't want to hear it. And yet others are intrigued by it. Nobody defends him. Nobody comes up to him. Even his parents aren't going to defend him. You'll read on verse 18. Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who received his sight. Well, the parents will stick up for him, right? Verse 19, and they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind and how does he now see? Is this some trick? Verse 20, his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we now, uh, but we, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he's an adult, he will speak for himself. Then verse 22 says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. They'd be a cast out, a cast away. Verse 23, they, therefore, his parents said, he is of age, why don't you ask him, right? Don't ask us, we didn't do anything, it's not our fault, right? Verse 24, again, they're not like, isn't this awesome? No. Verse 24, verse 24, it says this. And this is my favorite part. He, for the second time, they called the man who'd been born blind and said, at this point, he's just like, you've got to be kidding me, right? Give glory to God, they said. We know that this man is a sinner. Why don't you just tell us? We need your testimony to verify our claims of hatred against Jesus. We need you to say this, okay? Just say the line. Go along with the party line. Come on. Verse 25. He answered, look, guys, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. <laughs> Whoa, what, a, what a testimony. Does he know all the doctrines of soteriology or does he know all the big words of theology and these things? Does he know all the different ways about in which God is the three persons and Trinity? No. One thing he does know, which is the most crucial thing. I was blind, now I see, and that's all because of Jesus. <laughs> that's his statement. That's his statement of faith. That's his, his belief. It's incredible. It makes all the difference, does it not? It makes all the difference. And I'll keep reading just to finish the story so we're not left in suspense here. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Verse 27, he answered them, I have told you already. (laughs) And you would not listen. And I love this. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? I love it. He has no clue what's going on. He's so innocent. Wow, you guys care a lot about Jesus. Do you also want to follow him? No, 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 no. He's so clueless. Verse 28, and they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Verse 30, the man answered, why, this is amazing thing. Wow, this is incredible. You guys know this? You're from, you do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes? I love this, verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. So never since the world has begin, began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. 
So if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. (laughs) Were they happy with that? He just said, essentially, then I know where he comes from. He comes from God because he opened up my eyes. Because anybody couldn't do this unless he comes from God. Whoa, they don't want to hear that. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. How dare you would teach us? And they cast him out. Wow. So this interrogation goes on. The most incredible statement, I was blind, now I see. The summary statement of salvation, this beautiful statement that I think many of us can resonate with that in our lives we walked in darkness, now we've seen a great light. He doubles down in this comical statement as we just read, you wanna be his disciples. But then, in verse 35 and 38, he makes another statement, I believe, I love this. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. I love his compassion. Just didn't leave this guy in the dust. He heard that they had cast him out. He goes and seeks him out in verse 35. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? You can just see Jesus looking now into the eyes of a man who is now first seeing for the very first time in his life. He looks him in the eyes. Do you believe in the son of man? And he answered him, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Again, this this innocent of who exactly are you talking about? Jesus doesn't chide him. Oh, you should know all these things. He says, verse 37, Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. In a sense, you're looking at him, okay? Who's the light of the world? Who's the son of man? This designation in Daniel that this son of man would be the ancient of days and have no beginning and no end, and his kingdom would have no beginning and end. This son of man that would come. Jesus says, I am the son of man. I'm standing right here in front of you. Do you believe in him? What does he say? Verse 38, and he said, Lord, I believe. And then what did he do? He worshiped him. I believe, and then he worshiped. From faith and from belief, it motivates our action to give glory and worship to a holy God. There is no other response left for us as mankind. The man is healed, he believes, and he worships. And I wonder if that's your story today. And I wonder if for many of you, you can, you, you are like that, you are like the Apostle Paul who also saw a great light on the Damascus Road and said that God has now sent him to minister to the Gentiles, verse 18, to open their eyes of Acts 26, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. This is how Paul described Jesus' words to him on the Damascus Road. Paul, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go to the Gentiles so that I can, they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of their sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, that they may repent and turn to God, that they, you may proclaim light to the people and to the Gentiles. This statement of coming from darkness to light. A statement that can resonate with so many. Are we also the kind that are blind though? And that is the question I have for you. Are we blind? Look at this at the very end here. Just stick with me here a few minutes here. Verse 39, Jesus said, this is verse 39 of John 9. After the statement of belief, Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. What is he talking about? Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, hey Jesus, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, 
you would have no guilt. In a sense, you would now see. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. In a sense, Jesus is saying, if you think you can see on your own, you can't. And you never will. Those who think that they are blind or begin to know that they are blind are the ones who will receive true sight. But the ones who reject the light because they believe they can see on their own apart from anything else, they will live and the Bible says they will love the darkness. One commentator says those who are blind are the ones who do not realize their need. Those who receive sight are the ones who sense their darkness. The Pharisees, though they had it all together, they knew the law and thought they had arrived Through their acquaintance with the law, they knew that they were not perfect. They did not understand how deeply infected they were with sin in their darkness. So they adopted the external appearance of having dealt with sin through their, though actually they had never faced the darkness of their hearts. They were self-satisfied. They were the we see, when in reality, they were blind. The Bible also says, Jesus says, as the great physician. I come as a doctor, but I don't come for those who don't think they need a doctor. I come for the sick. (laughs) I come for those who recognize that they are in great need, that recognize the wages of sin is death. But the great gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It comes into a recognition. Maybe you've heard the story, and this is, is our conclusion today. Maybe you've heard of the story of John Newton. John Newton is the author of the most famous hymn, and many of you are already shaking, you know exactly, the most famous hymn known to the Western world, Amazing Grace. John Newton didn't grow up in a nice Christian household, never experienced any little difficulty thing, you know, he, he, he experienced the grave, utter darkness that the world has to offer by pursuing it wholeheartedly. He was thrown into the British Royal Navy by his father and he hated that. He bucked against all the rules and eventually he uh, ended up taking a job with a slave trader, a man named Mr. Clow. And eventually through his wickedness on that slave ship, he actually became enslaved himself. (laughs) And he was put into a prison um, and he was put onto an island off the western coast of Africa. He was treated brutally there. Eventually he escaped. He had to beg for food and all sorts of things. But then after more of a year living in abusive conditions in 1746, Newton managed to escape the island. He worked aboard the Greyhound, a ship based out of Liverpool. And by this time, Newton had begun to read the Bible once again, the thing that he had rejected. And he had a few books aboard the ship. And the following year, as he was a part of this slave-laden ship, as he was a slave trader by trade, The slave ship was bound for home and encountered a violent North Atlantic storm. And on March 21st, 1748, Newton was awakened in the night to find the ship was in dire trouble. And one sailor already washed overboard and lost his life. As Newton pumped out the water and bailed, he became convinced that he would soon meet the Lord. And recalling Bible verses about God's grace towards sinners that he had learned from his mother as a young boy, Newton whispered his first feeble prayers in years. And for the remainder of his life, Newton would remember that day as the anniversary of his conversion, the phrase that he penned, the hour I first believed. Toward the end of his life, many people don't realize this, but Newton actually developed a condition that led him blind. He developed blindness, but he continued to preach tirelessly 
as a pastor and writer. Newton developed blindness, continued to preach, and known to his dearly beloved, he became a father figure to the younger clergyman who sought to learn from his wisdom. His name was William Wilberforce, who eventually became the catalyst to destroy the slave trade in England and across the British Empire and make slavery illegal due to the the discipleship John Newton gave to William Wilberforce. This aspect of physically blind, yes, in some ways, yet spiritually full of life. And he pens for us the words that all of you, many of you know by heart, even if you didn't grow up in church, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And I think with John Newton, And with the blind man in chapter 9 of John, we too can come to that same place of saving grace and saving knowledge that we can have our lives opened up to the truth of God and eternal life can welcome you into the household of faith. And we can also likewise say, I don't know everything. I don't know all your answers to your questions. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see It's because of that man, Jesus Christ. And if you can say that today, welcome to the household of faith. Welcome to Christianity as we follow him as little Christs, seeking to follow our Savior and our Lord, our King of kings, the one who's redeemed our soul and made us new. The light of the world has come so that you will never, ever again have to walk in darkness. For the people who walked in darkness, we have seen a great light. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words today. We come before you, Lord, asking that you would remind us of the truth of your word, the reality of new life, because you are the light of life. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you, God, for your goodness and your mercy. God, we praise you for all that you have done, all that you will do, We praise you, Lord, for these people here today. And yet, God, I recognize that many may not know. Many may not have that faith yet. They they haven't seen the light. Would you be their light today to their blindness? Today, Father, would would you speak life into our dark hearts? Would you be that light upon the hill? Would we spread that gospel truth into our hearts so that we too can sing today amazing grace? How sweet the sound. I once was blind. Now I can see and I am found and I am saved and I am healed and I am alive because of all that you have done in my life. God, we praise you for these truths. In Jesus' name.